Great news, Engagers. You can get a free copy of Mark Miller's book, The Heart of Leadership, Becoming a Leader People Want to Follow. I'll tell you how to get a free copy at the end of this interview with Mark. Engaging Leader Podcast, Episode 97, Becoming a Leader People Want to Follow, featuring Mark Miller from Chick-fil-A. inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, Engagers. Our guest today is Mark Miller, Vice President for Organizational Effectiveness at Chick-fil-A. Ten years ago, Mark and his team set out to develop a clear process for identifying potential leaders. First, they identified the skills that set apart great leaders. This became the topic of the internationally best-selling book, The Secret, What Great Leaders Know and Do, which Mark co-wrote with Ken Blanchard and has just been released in a new 10th anniversary edition. After studying the skills, they identified five character traits that are unique to exceptional leaders. That became the subject of another book, The Heart of Leadership, Becoming a Leader People Want to Follow. And what they discovered may surprise you. Mark Miller, thanks for joining us on Engaging Leader. Well, Jesse, thanks for the opportunity. Mark, what's your background? How did you join Chick-fil-A and what did you find there? Well, my story goes way back. I actually started as an hourly team member in one of the restaurants back in the late 1970s. Unfortunately, I was a lousy team member. Uh, barely escaped uh, being fired because I just I wasn't good with my hands, and my wife can testify that uh, she never asked me to do anything around the house. So that problem has not gone away over all these decades. But I found myself um, interviewing for a job at the corporate office, and it's it's kind of a fun story. I walked in and told them I wanted a job working in their warehouse, and the receptionist told me to have a seat. And just a moment later, uh, Truett Cassie, the founder of Chick Fil A, came out introduced himself, took me into his office, and uh, began the interview. And, again, that may strike folks as odd, you know, thinking about Chick-fil-A as a $5 billion company. But 35 years ago, uh, I didn't realize I was interviewing to be the 16th corporate employee. And so (laughs) I guess if you've got a business of that scope and scale, the founder is the person doing those interviews. And so, thankfully, Truett selected me. Uh, to work in the warehouse and pull double duty and work in the mailroom as well. And that started uh, what to date is a 35-year career. And I have had trouble holding down a job here corporately. I've, I've worked in many, many departments and functions over the years, from field operations to corporate communications to quality and customer satisfaction to training and development and so forth and so on. But I'm thankful for that journey because I think it's given me a, a unique perspective. I've gotten to see the business um, you know, from many different, many different angles. So that's kind of the short version of a 35-year story. Chick-fil-A has produced some amazing business results relative to the rest of the industry. Mark, what's, can you share a little bit about that with us? Well, we're, we're thankful for uh, decades of double-digit sales growth. We've got an outstanding core of business leaders that operate those individual restaurants. And actually, uh, I think that's really the key to the success of our organization, competitive advantage, if you will. It's the caliber of business leader 
in each of those restaurants. And that was Truett's idea from the very beginning, that he didn't see this being a corporately run chain. He saw this as a powerful brand that was locally led and locally operated. And it's just been a, a great formula for success for all these years. One of the things that's long fascinated people about Chick-fil-A is that it's a restaurant that is not open on Sundays, which is uh, unheard of in the restaurant industry. That's one of the biggest days for restaurants and fast food so that your your staff can enjoy the day with family and worship services. And yet you still have tremendous profitability and growth. Well, that is correct. Uh, I think you, you mentioned we're not open on Sunday. Uh, that was not as radical in 1946 when Truett opened his first restaurant. Uh, it has become more and more countercultural as the decades have, have passed. Truett's philosophy uh, was that uh, he believed everybody needed a day for rest, a day to spend with their family, to worship if they choose. But uh, we believe that it would help us attract a higher caliber individual to work in those restaurants and uh, be good for their health and well-being, not to have to work seven days a week. And so, again, it's it's become a little more out of step with the culture, but it's been a practice that has served us well, and it is our plan for the future that we'll continue to operate in six days. And as you referenced, we've been so blessed with tremendous results. We actually outperform our competitors, even though we're only open six days versus there are seven. So somebody asked me this week if we would ever consider opening seven days, and I said I'd hate to reduce our sales because <laughs> I think it would have a negative impact on our business if we um, if we decided to open seven days. Now, about ten years ago, Chick Fil A did not have a clear process for identifying potential leaders. So you and your team set about identifying key traits, and uh, you put a lot of emphasis on skills and competency, which is probably where most companies would start, but it's a little that's actually a little bit different for Chick-fil-A to start there, isn't it? Well, yes. Uh, here's, here's the backstory uh, in a nutshell. We have always been a leadership-intensive organization, and many organizations would probably say that, but for us, it emanates from the role of that operator. If we don't get the right restaurant operator, our model, it just it just falls apart. I mean, everything rises and falls on leadership, yes, but in our situation, uh, we're not staffed uh, to provide leadership to the restaurants from the home office. That leadership has to be resident in the restaurant. So that's been the model since Truett uh, selected the first operator to run a Chick-fil-A restaurant. That was in 1967. But as far as our corporate staff, the process, and I use that term loosely, that we had used in the early years of the company, I describe as immersion and osmosis. It was basically young leaders uh, better pay attention, emerging leaders better pay attention, and, and learn all you can. And um, our former president used to say leaders will make themselves known. And at a certain scope and scale and volume, that actually had worked. You know, I had the privilege being one of those early employees to sit around the lunch table with some world-class leaders, including uh, Truett Cathy and uh, Jimmy Collins, our executive vice president, and Buck McCabe, our chief financial officer. I mean, I'm just a kid in the warehouse, but I'm, I am trying to pay attention, and I think you can learn leadership, you know, that way. But as we grew, 
the business grew, uh, we reached the year 2000, and we actually had what I call cracks in the system. And the best way to illustrate that is we had real, legitimate leadership opportunities, and we didn't have any leaders ready. We looked over our shoulder at our leadership bench, and we began to talk about, well, I hope this person can be ready at some point in the future, and maybe this leader will be ready in a couple of years. And that's when we decided that we needed to accelerate leadership development. We needed to be um, more uh, proactive, more uh, thoughtful, more strategic, And that journey began with, well, we don't even have a common definition. When we would say leadership, everybody would nod because they all had their own working definition, their own personal definition, but we didn't have a collective definition, one that we had agreed on. And um, we discovered in this process that there are over 6,000, or at the time, there were over 6,000 published definitions of leadership. So it was no mystery that if you've not done the hard work to forge a consensus, you're probably not going to agree. And so I was asked to try and help figure this out. Uh, As you referenced, I put together a team of really smart people, and we said, let's try to figure out what's our point of view on leadership. And we did all the things that you might expect. We did interviews, and we did global benchmarking, and we read a couple hundred books on leadership, all in an attempt to say, what do we believe? What's our leadership brand? And we chose to to focus on the skills that leaders needed to excel. We were trying to answer the question, what do leaders do? And that led to the work that um, became the SERVE model. And it was the precursor to the heart of leadership, which you referenced earlier, it's it's all predicated on an image of an iceberg. We think that's a perfect metaphor for leadership. About 10% of an iceberg is above the waterline, and that represents the skills of leaders, the things that are uh, most easily seen by others. And then there's about 90% below the waterline, which represents leadership character. Um, and so we felt, based on where we were in our history, based on the people we had selected, that we needed to bring clarity and definition to the skills piece. And so that's where we started. Then when you put started uh, capturing and studying the character traits piece, what's kind of interesting to me is when people talk, I think there's no... There's widespread agreement that character is very important for leaders, but people tend to think of things like integrity and honesty and hard, you know, work ethic, things like that. But that's not—that's really stuff that you expect from every employee. It's not really unique to great leaders. What's what's different for leaders? Well, see, that was that was one of those moments of revelation for us because when you talk about character, even in the context of leadership, you are absolutely correct. People want to talk about integrity, and they want to talk about loyalty, and and all those are admirable, and and you could even argue essential character traits, but they don't differentiate leaders. And we believe fundamentally leaders are different. Um, It's funny, when, when this book was in its early draft form, the title of the book was Leaders Are Different, because they are. 
And if you think about what a character trait is, a character trait is, is nothing more than a mark. Uh, it, it, it is a characteristic, and you can have good ones and you can have bad ones. I mean, laziness is a character trait, uh, just as loyalty and honesty and integrity. But we said, what are the things that separate leaders? What, what are the marks? What are the characteristics? What are the traits that leaders tend to possess that followers do not? And so that was that was the path we we were actually on trying to say we do not want to restate and rehash what's expected of every human being that we put on our payroll. We want to say what do we look for and what do we cultivate in our leaders that will enable them to become the leader people want to follow. Because one of the revelations as we went, as we just really thought deeply about this is that if your heart's not right, nobody cares about your skills. And you and, and your listeners can probably think of men and women that they know that have the skills of leadership, but you would choose not to follow them. And you'd choose not to follow them because you've got questions, questions, issues, or concerns about their character. And so we felt like it was very important to differentiate leadership character from foundational character traits. So you identified five traits that are unique to exceptional leaders, that these really set people apart to be great leaders. Why don't we just briefly go through those and then maybe we can dig a little deeper into one or two of them as our, as our time allows. The first one is hunger for wisdom. What's different about leaders in regard to that? Well, leaders... Leaders are learners. Uh, leaders possess a, a, a desire to learn, a desire to grow, which is a reflection of many things, not the least of which is their humility. Um, you know, pride pride derails a lot of leaders. And if, if you understand, and if I understand that we don't know it all and that we, we really must continue to learn and grow, uh, it will change the way we approach our work, it'll change the way we approach our people, it'll change the way we approach our lives. And so um, we just we just can't find great leaders that aren't on an aggressive path of pursuing wisdom. And the second is expect the best. That almost sounds like a, Pony- a Pollyanna level of optimism, but I don't think that's what you mean. No, but it is about optimism. Um, again, if you think about what you, you and I and other leaders are trying to do, we're trying to create a preferred future. And if we don't expect the best, it's very difficult for a pessimist to generate fellowship. I mean, just imagine the vision talk now. You know, the future is going to be a much worse version of today, and it's just going to be terrible you guys want to go with me? Let's go build this future that's worse than today. I mean, it just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. People do not want to follow a pessimistic leader. And so it it actually pertains to the vision, but it, it, there's a personal uh, application as you think about people. Do you expect the best of people? Do you expect the worst of people? Do you expect the best of yourself? Uh, do you expect uh, positive outcomes? Of course you're not going to always have positive outcomes. But what's the expectation? What's the belief? Because that'll drive 
the behaviors. It's just very, very difficult to have a pessimistic spirit and be a great leader. Again, I've actually never seen it. It may be out there somewhere in the world, <laughs> but who wants to follow a leader that thinks the future is going to be worse than today? That's right. I mean, we're the architects of the future, so you're going to design something that's worse than today and try to rally people to move towards that? It just, it, it's, it just it's crazy talk to me <laughs> to think that a leader could be effective if, if they're a pessimist. Yeah. Number three is accept responsibility. That's a big one. It is big. Uh, I think that's a huge part of what leaders say they are willing to do, as opposed to an individual contributor. Uh, a leader says, no, I'm willing to accept responsibility for my work. I'm willing to accept responsibility for the work of others who I am leading. Uh, I'm, I'm willing to uh, accept responsibility, good or bad, although it's interesting, you'll find that best leaders don't place blame they own things this happened to me just recently i'm in a meeting uh, with the officers uh, of our organization and i say you know i blew this well truth be told it was my accountability it was my responsibility the, the mistake was made three levels down in the organization but i'm not going i'm not i'm not giving that report mm-hmm. because that's my accountability I said, I blew this, we'll work on this, here's some things we're doing to try and, you know, prevent this from happening in the future. But it's not, you know, Susie Q didn't do what Susie Q was supposed to do. That's my accountability. I've got to accept that. But the flip side of that, and this is often overlooked, if you're going to become the leader that people want to follow, if you're going to develop the character that we're describing here, you're also quick to give praise. So it's it's the flip side. Yes, you'll accept responsibility for outcomes. You'll accept responsibility when things don't go, don't go well. But you're very quick to give praise and credit and thanks and appreciation to others. Because at the end of the day, if we can't create followership, we're really not leading much. And uh, Ken Blanchard and I wrote about this in The Secret. The question we say that you had to ask is, am I a serving leader or a self-serving leader? And if you're taking credit for everything, then people are going to quickly put you in that category of a self-serving leader. Mm -hmm. Number four is respond with courage. And this was the part of the book that almost had me biting my nails that, geez, do I really, do I really live this part out? What's, what's respond with courage mean to you? Well, I think, I think without courage, leadership is impossible. Because, I mean, true leadership. Because I think virtually everything a leader does requires some courage. Now, sometimes small doses, sometimes larger doses. But you think about all the things that leaders have to do. They have to make hard decisions. They've got to make hard decisions about strategy. They've got to make hard decisions about people. Uh, they've got to make hard decisions about uh, expansion. They've got to make hard decisions about budget. They've got to make hard decisions, even about how to use their time. You know, what are you going to say yes to? What are you going to say no to? Now, certainly all of those are not created equal as, as far as how much courage is required. But uh, if, if you're consistently shying away from those courageous decisions, then you're probably not having much influence. You're probably not having much impact. You know, do you move towards problems? Do you move away from problems? 
Do you move towards opportunities? Do you move away from opportunities? Are you willing to, to uh, even at, at the highest level, I think it takes courage to declare a preferred future and say we're moving towards that. Because by definition, it doesn't exist. You're placing a strategic bet of sorts by even declaring we're going this way. Mm-hmm. All of that requires courage. All of that requires courage. The, the timid leader, they're, they're elusive. I, I don't see many timid leaders. Now, that doesn't mean they need to be gregarious, extroverted, out front. I'm not talking about personality trait. I'm not talking about temperament. I know some very reserved, introverted, quiet leaders who are extremely courageous. Jim Collins, when he talked about this, and his level five leader, he talked about humility and will. This is the will part. We're, we're going to do this. It may not be popular. It may not be easy. Hey, and guess what? It may not be right. But we got to move. And, we, and, and somebody's got to make a decision, and I'm going to make the decision. Again, sometimes little, sometimes medium, and sometimes huge decisions. And then the fifth character trait for leaders is think of others first. And that's actually where you, I think, start out in the book. I sort of read them backwards, but think of others first is pretty fundamental as a leader. Well, it is fundamental. I'll give you a quick story on that. When I met with the publisher, this was before the book was released. We were not in an early draft, but it, it had not been published yet. And I met, I met with the, uh, the team there, and they challenged me that people really don't read books, which was surprising to me that the publisher would, you know, tell me this because they sell books. <laughs> but that's how was what they told me. And they said, and if they do buy a book and start reading it, most people don't finish it. And I went, okay. And so what? how would you like me to respond to that? And he said, well, in this book, you've got five leadership character traits. He said, you better put the good stuff in the front. And I said, well, I said, I got two thoughts for you. One, it's only a hundred page book. And, uh, and secondly, I've tried to edit out all the bad stuff. And he said, yeah, but one of these traits has got to be more important. And so what I believe is this ability to think others first is probably the first among equals. Because if you and I and, and your listeners, if we can't cultivate the ability to think others first, it diminishes even the need to do these other things. Because we're trying to generate fellowship. You know, we want to be the leader that people want to follow. And if they believe we are uh, all about us, all about ourselves, it just it diminishes their desire to line up behind us and try to create that preferred future. So that would explain why in the book I actually was caught by surprise when these five leadership character traits spelled out the word heart, H-E-A-R-T. The way we just walked through them, it's more obvious. But in the book, the, the order has changed and it's not till the very end where it's almost a surprise that it spells out heart. And of course, the title of the book is Heart of Leadership. And I thought, I should have seen that one coming. Well, keep in mind, you know, I was trying to find a way to surprise you, but I felt chicken <laughs> for a living. So that's the best thing I could come up with <laughs> uh, as far as trying to surprise the reader. But no, they, they did ask, they said, put, put what you think is most important. If somebody's going to read the first third of this book, what do they have to walk away with? And if we can't learn to think others first, 
uh, it's really going to be hard to be a servant leader. What tip can you share to help someone listening that thinks, geez, maybe, do I really think of others first? How, how can someone develop that trait? All right, so here's, here's one tactic, and I'm going to challenge your, your listeners. Stay with me on this, and don't, don't dismiss this because it sounds crazy, all right? But stay with me. If you will try to add value to every person you meet, you can strengthen this leadership character trait called think others first. Now, people will say, well, that's impossible. So hold on. If you will try, what happens if I'm trying to add value to other people? It's very difficult to be thinking about me first. So it's not even about your batting average, whether you add value to others 20% of the time or 50% of the time or 70% of the time. It's that if you try and you try consistently, it will change your orientation. It'll change the way you think about people. And folks say, well, what kind of things do you have in mind? So, well, there are many, 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 many ways you can add value to others. You can encourage, you can challenge, you can coach, you can pat on the back, you can smile. If you're a person of faith, you can lift up a prayer on behalf of someone else. I mean, there are just so many ways. But it's more about your orientation than the actual success rate. And it it can change your life. Does that bring the risk of being that guy that is always trying to fix other people or uh, tell other people what to do, almost that, that know-it-all or teacher type? How do you balance that out? Well, I think it's actually an issue of the heart. I mean, that's, that's what we're talking about. Um, and I think we have to always uh, use good judgment. There's a measure of discernment required. You know, this is not a one-size-fits-all. Uh, I think you've got to be very sensitive to your circumstances. You've got to be very sensitive uh, to the situation. You've got to be sensitive to the individual that you're encountering. I'm going to try to add value differently to the person working the drive through at Starbucks that I'm going to spend 60 seconds in front of versus the employee I'm going to spend an hour with. Mm-hmm. Or the team that I'm going to spend a day with. So I, I think it's I think it's something that you can learn over time, and you'll probably make missteps along the way, and you'll you'll miss an opportunity here or there. But again, I think it's the pursuit that actually changes your heart. Yeah, I think you're right, and and being sensitive, having your antenna up about what really that person needs, what's going to be helpful, what's going to add value. As you said, pull, pulling up to the person at the drive through at Starbucks, a lot of times when you just notice someone's name tag and say thank you and use their, their name and use a smile, I mean, you might be the first person in 20 or 50 cars that has given them that level of humanity. Sure. Or if, if you have a drinking problem like I do, and I go to the Starbucks often, you actually <laughs> learn the names of the people and you learn something about them. And what are you doing when you get off from work today while you're waiting on your drink at Toby? fixes my drink, and I know he's in school. Oh, by the way, I gave him a copy of my book just recently. and said, Toby, you know, you're, you're in school. What are you studying? Hey, I got a book I'll give you. You know, if you, if you have any spare time, maybe you'll enjoy this. Well, I didn't give Toby a book the first time I met him. I gave him a book the 50th time I met. 
right? Because I'm not actually trying to sell books. I'm trying to add value to Toby's life. Mm. Yeah, that's a good that's a good distinction. And so once the relationship is such that I think, hey, maybe this is something he would appreciate. I, I, I think there's just discernment uh, that's required. That and I, I don't always get it right. And the people who would try this won't always get it right. But again, it's back to is your heart right? Are you really trying to think others first? I mean, is that really what you're trying to do? And I think I think your your motives here will actually will actually shine through. At least over time, and and your heart will change along the way. And for some people, this will be easier than it will for others. But I think there's a natural human tendency for all of us to think about ourselves. So this is this is probably counterintuitive. It's probably countercultural, and it's probably against our human nature. But I think that's one reason it's so powerful. I think that's one reason that people are so drawn to leaders that really do have their best interest in heart, at heart. Yeah, it does make a big difference when you feel like this person is not just out for their game, but they actually care about me. And they their general orientation in life is thinking others first. That is, as you said, it's, it's probably, it, it seems to be the first among these five equals. That's the way... Uh, that's the way I think about it. Mark, as we come to a close today, do you have any parting thoughts for our listeners? Well, yeah, I'll tell you a quick story. I did something recently called a tweet chat, and I had no idea what that was before I did it, but as (laughs) as I would describe it to people today, I was basically trying to have a meaningful and deep conversation with a million people simultaneously. (laughs) Uh, And I thought my head was going to explode. And so they're giving, the host is giving me these questions for those that aren't familiar with the format. Uh, they give me a question, I answer in 140 characters or less. In fact, they told me just to use 100 because part of the, the deal is you want people to retweet and pass things along and whatnot. So they said, really, give us 100 character responses. So I send a response, and then the world responds. And we have people all over the world responding. And then five minutes later, they give me another question, and we've got this big global conversation stuff flashing by the screen. It's going crazy. <laughs> and so we get to the last question. And the question was, what's the best leadership advice you've ever received? Hmm. And I'm sitting there going, well, one, that's a really, really hard question. And two, you want me to answer it in a hundred characters. I mean, this is kind of going through my head. And here's, here's what I came up with. Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Now, I've had people say, boy, that sounds really deep and profound. Well, it, it is deep and profound, and it's not my idea. Um, King Solomon said that several thousand years ago. Above all else, God guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. And my encouragement to leaders and my encouragement to myself is if I can get these five uh, character traits uh, in place, I still have to learn the skills of leadership. These are no substitute for skills, but if you have the skills without these, you will be dismissed as a leader. No one will care about your skills if your heart's not right. So my advice during that tweet chat and my advice to any of your listeners is above all else, guard your heart. That's good advice. Well, the book, once again, is The Heart of Leadership, Becoming a Leader People Want to Follow. Mark, where can people find out more about this book and about your work? 
Well, a couple of places. I mean, the book is Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the places you would normally uh, buy books, both online and uh, in the bookstores. Uh, my work, you can learn more at greatleadersserve.com. That's leaders plural. And I'm posting three times a week, so would love to um, interact with people there. And then I'm on Twitter, at leaders plural, leaders serve. And so I am, uh, again, a couple of years into my Twitter journey, so I'm still trying to, to figure out how the Twitter sphere works, but uh, enjoy that space as well. So uh, just love to interact with people, serve them if I can. They can contact me through email on the greatleaderserve.com site. And uh, if there's anything I can do to serve them, I'd love the opportunity. Well, Mark Miller, it has been a blast chatting with you today. Thanks for joining us on The Engaging Leader. Uh, Thanks a lot. All right, Engagers. I mentioned at the beginning that you can get a free copy of Mark's book. We'll send a copy to the first five people who email me with a list of all five of the unique character traits exhibited by exceptional leaders. Hunger for wisdom, expect the best, accept responsibility, respond with courage, and think others first. Send that email to jesse at engagingleader.com. You know, Tim Ferriss mentioned in his book, The 4-Hour Workweek, that in contests like these, almost everyone assumes there will be so many other people trying that they don't have a chance. And so often, the prizes go unclaimed. And that has happened with some of our giveaways in the past. So let me encourage you to respond with courage right now. You could easily be one of the people to get Mark's book for free. In addition, Mark offers an ebook that everyone can have for free. It's called Leaders Go First, 10 Ways You Can Set the Pace for Those You Lead. And we'll put a link to it on our show notes for this episode, which you can find on our website at engagingleader.com forward slash 97 as in episode 97. This is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with midsize and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at AspendaleCommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Dustin Hartzler, our website engineer, J.J. Leahy, our video and web intern, Rick Terrence, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of each opportunity to engage the people we care about.